0: In today's episode of Project Recovery...
1: For those who won't or can't get themselves to get help themselves, I've considered what I do as one of the first steps in substance abuse treatment. If they can't make the decision on their own... I put them in front of a judge to give them opportunities. And I have had a lot of calls over the years from prosecutors saying, hey, we've got this case you sent to us, and this is what we're thinking about doing as far as a plea. You know, they get into a program and they don't do jail or, or they go to drug court or whatever. I am all for that.
0: Make sure you listen to the end. Find us on Facebook at Project Recovery. We'll have that and much more coming up. Welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction, but more importantly, it's about recovery, and it's brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. For information about the opioid epidemic, go there, check it out. They've got a lot of resources, and without them, we wouldn't be able to do this podcast every week. I'm Casey Scott. That is Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. Uh, we were just talking off air. Uh, if people have listened to this podcast, they might know that uh, you have an, uh, you don't have the ability to smell.
2: <laughs> right. The nose doesn't work anymore. That, that, anymore. It used to. And I remember how things smell, which is a weird experience. Like you can sit and anybody can do it. Like think about something that's, you know, pizza or whatever. Mm-hmm. You can remember how it smells. That, that, that's me. Yep. And do you remember the last thing you smelled? Uh, no, because every once in a while I'll catch a real smell and it lasts for maybe a second or two and it's gone. Uh, but it was probably in my late 20s, early 30s, it really started to be noticeably a problem. And it's just, it's a degenerative olfactory problem, you know, that nerve yeah. in the top of your nose.
0: You nerve. know, a side effect
2: from the COVID for a lot of people was the not S- smelling. Not smelling or smelling weird things. I have yeah. friends who said that everything kind of smelled like a, a decaying bog, you know, like, like organic decay. Death, desperation, yeah. So you have strawberries and they smell like you know dying well stuff.
0: tiktok's yeah. never steered me wrong if you take an orange and then you burn it yeah and then you take a bite into it uh-huh. you should be able to get your smell
2: back is that a tiktok thing yeah wow i have I have been wasting time with doctors for well
0: let's get to this show and then you can go home and give it a
2: shot <laughs> I, I will come definitely.
0: back next week and tell us how
2: it uh, went. that'll be my homework
0: so um my homework uh is always coming up with the first 10 minutes of each program
2: yeah, And I'd like guess. to
0: say that I think about it all week. Do you? No, but well, I don't. You'd like to say that, though. But I would, but I yeah. don't. What I really do is I get into my car, in the 15-minute it takes me to get here, I go, I know how you operate, Casey. What don't could we operate. talk about? <laughs> and it got me thinking um, that um, I'm curious to you, because uh, there's a lot of people that have sat down on this podcast and talked about their substance abuse. Mm-hmm. And the reason they originally were drawn towards substances was it was a coping mechanism.
2: Yeah that's common.
0: And so I think in re- rather than battling the substance abuse, we should be able to go back and give people better coping mechanisms. And that's what they taught me when I was at Pinnacle Recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, they taught me, you know, meditation, breathing, being in present and, and a lot of that.
2: It's a prevention model, right? If we can prevent the things that are causing, you know, if we can treat or prevent the things that are causing you to use and we prevent your use.
0: There's a lot of people who've sat down in that chair right over there and said the first time they tried marijuana or the first time they tried alcohol is because they were, they had a lot of anxiety as a, as a child. Yeah. And, and all of a sudden when they took it, they felt normal. So you work with kids because you're a clinical psychologist and that's mo- mostly who you work with as young adults.
2: Uh, yeah. Teens. I'd, a lot of older kids, teens and young adults are probably the, the majority of the people I work with. Yeah.
0: So what could we help the listeners at home with? How could we give them some positive coping mechanisms? How could we have them
2: talk to their kids if they're feeling this anxiety of something they could do to help them? Well, that's a great question. Um, well, first of all, the the kind of anxiety has both kind of a learned aspect, but it often starts with a biological predisposition, which runs in families. So if you're a parent, uh, you ought to open that dialogue. You ought to say, first of all, have I experienced anxiety? Did I feel like stress was hard for me to handle? Did was I anxious and really shy as a kid? Maybe you didn't think of it as anxiety, but were you hesitant to join groups? You know, that sort of thing. And then talk to your siblings, talk to your parents. Did they have similar things, similar problems? A lot of families don't like to talk about that, but it's good to talk about, it. just like you ought to talk about if grandpa had heart disease or grandma had cancer. you got to talk about those things. And then know that your kids are at higher risk for that. So talk to your kids then about the fact that how do they manage stress? Do you, can you see them stress, you know, stressed out and what do we do? Um, but there are a lot of different sorts of things you can do to help with that.
0: Because I'm thinking to myself, because I never had those conversations with my parents or my siblings. Yeah. But the coping mechanisms that I used up until this point mm-hmm. were more of a learned behavior. I saw how my dad dealt with stress. Mm-hmm. I saw how my mom used with, dealt with stress, and those are the kind of things that it's I called am-
2: modeling. Your parents model to you whether they realize it or not. Like how they deal with stress is how you deal. An example I always use in therapy or I like to use is because everyone's seen the movie A Christmas Story with Ralphie and all that, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. And so uh in that movie, the dad models a great, a fantastic way of dealing with stress. Not down in the basement when he's cursing and swearing at the furnace, but when he when they get the flat tire. And dad's driving along, he gets the flat tire, and you'd think a dad would, would kind of lose it, you know, get upset, curse a little bit. He's really upset, that the, but he doesn't, does he? No. This, this dad, you know, the talk over in the movie is, my dad thought he was in the pit at the Indy 500 changing a tire. Before he jumps out, he turns to his wife and he says, time me. You know, he jumps out and he, he's having fun with it. Mm-hmm. That's a great example of a father uh, modeling a wonderful way to deal with a stressful situation. The tire's got to get changed. You can curse and swear about it. Or you can be, you know, happy and turn it into a kind of a fun little game. And so as a parent, uh, you know, at, you asked earlier, what can parents do? Well, one thing is check your modeling. Like, how do I model handling stress? Do I curse and swear? Do I get upset? Do I slam the table? Or do I have other more healthy ways of modeling uh, dealing with stress? Kids, tune into that. Here, I'm not proud of this, but I remember coming
0: out of recovery and something bad happened. And I said the F word. I said it loud, Mm -hmm. audible around the kids. uh, uh, Well, here's the deal: audible (laughs) for my whole family to hear. (laughs) Okay, but they weren't in the room with me.
2: Okay, so it was pretty loud.
0: And my son comes down, and so he was probably seven at the time. And he goes, "Dad," and I go, "Yeah." He goes, "Why F?" You know, and he says it. (laughs) He says it, and I went, "Oh." This is not good, you know, and that's the thing is that I mean, I, I, but that's something my dad would have done. And then I really thought about what I'm doing and what I'm saying, how
2: you're modeling and and I was like, because
0: he didn't understand what it means. But he knew that I was mad and I said that and he said, why? And then uh, this is learning from a seven year old. I go, I don't know why. Yeah. You know what I mean? It doesn't I, have to be that. But no. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah. And so they are a lot smarter than we know. And I and I think we should reiterate that modeling behavior because
2: it, it's not what you say. It's what you do, mostly it's, when it comes to kids. It, especially when it comes to kids. Their radar is always up, and they're always paying attention. And um, part of the task of being a child and a, and a teenager is is learning how to meet your own needs. That's one of the, the natural psychological stages of development that everybody goes through. We all have different kinds of needs, physical, emotional, psychological, interpersonal, and how do we meet those needs? Well, our parents are our first model of how we meet those needs. So, you know, when I have stress, getting rid of stress is a need, managing my stress. How do I do it? You know, if a parent uh, resorts to a lot of yelling and cursing, uh, physical aggression, uh you know slamming the table or do you turn do you see your parent turn to a drink or getting stoned a lot of parents don't hide that from their kids and even if they think they're hiding it they're not really mm-hmm. and so we can model inadvertently some really unhealthy behaviors to our kids and i would say that's one of the very most powerful things you can do is check your modeling try your very best if you feel like you don't have coping skills for stress in your life this has been A tremendously unique and stressful year for everybody in the country. And so it's a good year to say, well, how did I manage my stress during the craziness of of 2020?
0: I can tell you right now, drinking
2: has gone way up. Drug abuse has gone way up. Domestic violence has gone way up. And so people are falling back on some really unhealthy skills, if you want to call them that, to manage their stress. But there are a lot healthier things out there. Exercise is a wonderful thing learning how to uh, speak differently. I mean, that sounds weird, but I coach people all the time on how to express themselves differently to get better outcomes. Um, things like mindfulness, meditation, um, breathing, there breathing um, journaling. There's lots of different stress skills that are very healthy, but unfortunately we, we often react to our emotions, and that's where the anger comes out, and, and then we're modeling Negative things to our kids, so check your check your modeling as a parent that 's a healthy thing to do.
0: One thing that I found really helpful during my recovery is to take a moment mm-hmm. uh, you know you said it right there a lot of people are reactionary yes and and you know they just open their mouth and whatever comes out comes out and mm-hmm. i and i 'm normally like that, but sometimes if I stop, take a step back, assess the situation, and then get my thoughts, and then go from there because reactionary huh, is
2: just huge. is is yeah. A lot of people struggle with what's called low stress tolerance. They, they just can't, uh, well, they think they can't, you know, tolerate stress very, very, very long at all. And so they learn these quick reactive sort of behaviors to try to push stress away or stressful situations. And unfortunately, those are often very aggressive or negative. Um, so you can check yourself when the, when you have a stressful situation how long can you wait before you deal with it? Uh, obviously, emergencies may be different, but you know let's you're, you're in a stressful situation. Can you take a minute? Can you stop and breathe? Can you the old cliche count to ten? Can you walk away and come back and deal with it effectively um, what's your stress tolerance level? You might be surprised if you really look at how you handle stress, you might realize boy i don't i can't tolerate stress very well, and i've developed all these less effective you know less maladaptive would be the term i 'd use ways of dealing with it. So learning to tolerate stress yourself goes a long way in your parenting. I mean, it reminds me of my favorite philosopher. Who's that? Ice Cube. Oh, Ice Cube. Okay. He said, you got to
0: check yourself before you wreck yourself.
2: Well, truer words were never spoken. You know what I'm saying? I do. Hey,
0: we've got a great (laughs) show for you today on Project Recovery. You might remember about two weeks ago, we had a young lady from Birdseye. If you don't know where Bird's Eye is, Google it. Her name was Jessica Butterfield.
2: I kept getting it mixed up with the frozen vegetables.
0: Yeah, nope, nope, that's not that. <laughs> no, nope, nope. not that. But she came out and she talked about how she kind of got into addiction and how she battled it and was pulled over by an officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, that officer kind of changed the course of her life, and now they're actually living together. Her kids play with his grandkids. Well, let's 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 clarify that. Okay, well,
2: they're not living together. Living next to each next other, next door. They're neighbors. Yeah, by happenstance. They just happened, she happened to move in next door to him. Yes. I just wanted to be clear. <laughs>
0: Makes sense now. Yeah, okay. It made sense in my head. I know it It did. just didn't make it down I, my lips. It didn't. It was, I'm, that's what I'm here for, buddy. Our guest today is Sergeant Spencer Cannon. We're going to hear from him in just a second. You're listening to Project Recovery. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That is Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. A lot of people ask me why I say that. And I say, well, it's in the contract, because you went to all those years of school. We should I probably give you your just dues. I
2: didn't put it in the contract, though. Let's be clear about that. I Clinical don't care. psychologist. Yeah, that was put in because the, the people producing this show wanted it to sound credible
0: when we started this show they said we like your idea but can we get somebody smarter than you to validate it and i was like i know a guy let's see what he's busy
2: yeah no well we've done work before and it's fun i love doing the show but yeah they put it in just to be clear i don't i don't care if people know one of the reasons i love this show is because sometimes the story
0: comes full circle Two weeks ago, we had Jessica Butterfield on, mm-hmm. and uh, she told her story of addiction. Oh, great story! And what she doing now, and, yep. and all the good stuff. Well, one of the guys who was a key player in her story is here today. It's Sergeant Spencer Cannon. How are you, sir? Doing well. How are you, Casey? Good. So, uh, before we get into kind of your story and everything that goes on with uh, Jessica and your own family, because I know you've got some recovery in your family as well, mm-hmm. and that's going to be fascinating for people to hear, uh, kind of how that all played out. Uh, do you Tell me your side of the story of Jessica Butterfield.
1: Um, I work for the Utah County Sheriff's Office. I've been there a little over 30 years. Uh, worked in a variety of capacities. But uh, December 17, 2008, uh, I was assigned to our patrol division. I worked on a specialty team. Uh, we do traffic and drug and alcohol enforcement. And and I was working a shift that, uh, that evening, I guess it was, and uh, just driving down the freeway approaching Spanish Fork on I-15. And uh, I'm always watching... For things that might need some attention, and uh, she made a lane change without signaling. This car did. I didn't know it was Jessica at the time, but uh, uh, she made a lane change without signaling, and um, and I thought, well, I got nothing else going on right now, so I'm going to pull her over. And I uh, pulled her over, and when I checked her name, she had a couple of uh, arrest warrants. Um, I did uh, search the car. Uh, I found some tobacco in there, and uh, she had a suspended driver's license. She wasn't able to pay for the warrants. They were like $1,500 in bail, and very few people have that to be able to do that. So uh, she, I took her to jail. Um, I try to not impound cars if I don't have to in situations like that, but she didn't have anybody who could come pick it up.
0: Because a lot of times, that's insult to injury. It is. all oh, it really is. And because all of a sudden, what people don't realize, and this happened when I got my DUI and they impounded my car, I mean, you're, 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 it's so expensive, because it's. Is it? Pl- I don't know how yeah, expensive it is. Yeah, they impound your car. Yeah. That's about $1,500 for the original impound. Mm-hmm. And then if you can't pick it up that day, usually a lot of them happen on the weekend, so you can't get them out on the weekend. So then it's $50 a day. And so in order to get your car it adds back. up pretty quick. I mean, it could be somewhere from two to three grand.
1: It, it is. It's, it's pricey. In this case, it was just a hold for owner impound, and so it was a little bit less, but still there was the cost of that. And then took her to jail. And I didn't know. I remember at the time, I didn't I didn't know anything else was going on, but I remember getting a the sense there's something more going on here that I didn't know. Um, after that diet that I took her to jail, I really didn't th- think much about it. I, I remember going through some old reports and, and coming across it once uh, five or six years ago, uh, but that was really the only attention I gave it
0: until a year and a half ago. And uh, you moved in next to her. That's correct. But she says, and she said on this very podcast, uh, that she was on her way to buy heroin, and had, I didn't know that either, yeah. Had she picked up the heroin, came back, you already said you searched the car, that would have been a felony. Right. Yeah,
1: at the time, possession of heroin was a felony, even just user amount. Uh, and, you know, I, don't, I can't just search a car because I want to. I had a reason. I had an odor of uh, tobacco, and she wasn't old enough to possess tobacco, so that's why I searched the car. Uh, and I probably would have done the same thing. If I got her after she made the purchase of the heroin, uh, and uh, that's at the time was a felony, and she would have gone to jail for that, she would have
2: had a felony. Had she had even just a small amount of record, yeah, right. I'm actually as kind of a curiosity that just popped into my mind. I don't know the answer to this, and you started to explain it. Um, What are the criteria for searching someone's car? So this person had not signaled. When they made a lane change, I'm sure I've been guilty of that before, you know, and if, if an officer pulled pulled you over, what are the criteria for searching through a person's car? I'm just curious. Yeah. Uh,
1: the criteria, you have to have probable cause to to do a search, to be able to search a person or uh, to search a car, I should say. Um, if I have a house or a building I want to search, I've got to go get a warrant for that. Um, mm. I have to have probable cause for it. I have to write a statement and show that to a judge. They have uh, to sign off on it. The judge has to issue a warrant. Uh, they've made exceptions for uh, automobiles because of the uh, – basically, the the evidence could go away if I don't search it, and mm-hmm. taking the time to do that is not reasonable. So it's a, a plain smell or a plain view doctrine is what they call it, meaning if I smell a substance that is not legal – so if I smell alcohol in a car, I can't just search the car. If there's one occupant and it's an adult and they haven't consumed enough to be arrested for – driving under the influence. But if I smell alcohol and I've got everybody in the car who's underage, then that is uh, enough probable, probable cause, cause to search the car based on the odor. Uh-huh. If I see an open container of alcohol in a console, it doesn't matter uh, if they're underage or not. You can't do that in Utah, and that would give me probable cause to search the car. And in this case, the probable cause was that I smelled the odor of tobacco and, and she, was she wasn't under, old enough to possess it. Know. So I searched the car based on I think I found three so cigarettes. What you're
2: saying is I would be a terrible police officer since I can't smell. Yeah. Uh, would, I would. I wouldn't. That, that I never thought about that. It I, would be a hindrance. It, yeah, I would Definitely would. I would never be able to pick up on those odors. Uh, and because I've been in uh, the TV
0: long enough and watched the news, I'm a you know an avid follower of the news. I fifteen through Utah is a major thoroughway for drugs, and so because of those stops and because of those things, a lot of drugs don't get to the streets of Utah, right? Oh,
1: absolutely, it's definitely true. Uh, we get anywhere from small user amounts, like Jessica went to pick up later after I after she got out of jail. Uh, And then we get more massive amounts. We have our undercover guys who pick up, you know, 2, 4, 15, 20 pounds of uh, methamphetamine at a time. Recently, there's been a little bit more of a surge in heroin, and they're picking up pounds and pounds of heroin, which is really unusual. And that, I mean, uh, you know, you get a pound of heroin, that's enough to kill a lot of people.
0: And a lot of that, we had a DE agent on, uh, on a town hall I did a while back, and a lot of that's fate, uh, laced with fentanyl, and that's very deadly, and so a lot of people are you know, can no longer get their pills anymore. And so the natural progression is to go to heroin. And then, it, I mean, it's just, it's, it's Russian roulette with drugs. You, oh, you just don't know if that next one's going to be your last one. It's dangerous. Yeah. Uh, I want to get back to Jessica real quick because Hatchie picked up the heroin and you pulled her over and landed a felony. I think for a lot of the young listeners or family members at home, uh, a felony is a bad thing to catch. It can affect your life for the rest of your life. We've had a lot of people on here who have seemed to s- succeed, even though having that, but yeah. it really does put you in, behind the eight ball.
1: It does. It makes. It can make a lot of things more difficult. Simple things like uh, you lose the the right to vote. Um, you lose the right to possess a firearm, uh, certain kinds of other dangerous weapons, you know, swords and knives and things like that. But it's it's problematic in What about way.
2: a passport? Can you travel internationally if you have a felon? I think
1: there are some restrictions on that. I think those restrictions are more in the countries that will let you in, not in the ability uh, to get one here, but more in the, some will
0: block you the, from the places coming. where you can uh, go. Because yeah. of my DUI, I can't go to Canada. Right. What's that about?
2: I don't,
0: <laughs> I don't know, Hoser. You know, uh, but I mean, the, but not only that. Uh, I, I because I had my real estate license at one time. Felonies can mm-hmm. really help you, hurt you from renting an apartment, yeah. uh, finding places to live, getting a job, getting the job that you wanted. A, a felony can really keep you from doing a lot of things, and so uh, you need to be cognizant of that when you're out there and you're young and you think you're invincible and you know you you can't be touched. A felony right. can really slow you down.
1: Yeah, if it, it. You know, we should. We should choose to not use drugs for the right reasons, but and I wouldn't say that not using drugs because you don't want a felony that's going to mess up renting an apartment or getting a job or things like that. But if that's what it takes to keep you from using, great. I'm, I'm all for that while you're looking for the other more positive motivations for not doing it. But that is, that is something that happens down the road that you don't even think about immediately
0: when you go to use well you know i think dr matt in the beginning of the podcast said we want to be preventative and that you know that's Mm -hmm. really what we should talk to the youth about is you know you think that this is going to be fun but if this happens this could really change the the your life for the rest of your life and so i mean because we've had people sit down there where you are sergeant cannon talking about racking up felony after felony (laughs) after felony because they were already mired in the system so what's one more felony gonna do Mm -hmm. i mean i think we had the lady on and she had 21 felonies
2: I think that's our record, yeah.
0: 21 felonies on one person. That's a lot. lot. And uh, now she's out, and she's doing wonderful and and doing amazing things.
2: It makes you question eventually, like, what are these felonies all about? Why are they not changing a person's behavior? Uh, A behaviorist or a behavioral psychologist will tell you that when we use the term punishment, it only gets to be a punishment if it reduces uh, negative behavior. And so at some point, a person is getting punished over and over again, but it's not reducing their behavior. So we have to look at other means, like why aren't these felonies stopping this person from doing these things? And maybe then back to kind of the theme of this show, maybe we need to focus on recovery. And I'm glad that there are so many – there are starting to become more and more programs out there you know, by the state, even federal programs that help people reduce felonies and get – uh, sober so that that, you know, that's the real core issue. But, yeah.
1: you know, I I think uh, with uh, people say, well, you know, you shouldn't be putting uh, addicts in jail. You shouldn't be putting drug users in jail. And I understand what they're saying. And I agree that treatment should be, needs to be the first option. But as I'm sure you both know, those, you, you lead the horse to water. And if that horse chooses not to drink, they're going to continue to use. Yeah. Um, and at some point the behaviors outside of using that people engage in, stealing from their family. Jessica did that. Uh, Burglarizing homes, uh, robberies, things like that. Society at some point has to be protected from them until they make the choice to start getting clean. They get their support system in place, and they make the choice to move forward and not do it anymore. And I think it's
2: a complicated issue because, you know, arguably uh, many people – who are addicted, wouldn't be doing any of those illegal behaviors if they weren't addicted. So it's kind of, you know, yeah. chicken or the egg sort of thing. <laughs> I've talked to, I, I, I can think of uh, a few different people, but one guy in particular who had lost his college scholarship. He was a D1 athlete. Mm. He would lost all of that. He was, uh, you know, struggling with addiction and came in my office one day, broke down in tears. Uh, great big guy just bawling in my office, finally got it together and and I was really worried because he'd never acted like this before, and it was because he had he had broken into someone 's home and stolen things and and he was so ashamed of himself that he would go to those lengths to feed his addiction and Of course, you know we I worked with some other doctors and we got him into an appropriate program but you know it's 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 a questionable of course if a person's breaking the law, if they're assaulting someone if they're stealing property, if you know those sorts of things can't be tolerated at the same time. If we can get a person into a healthy program and they become healthy, then a lot of these people, what's the theme of this show? Give back. People are giving back like crazy once they get, you know, clean and sober. So it's – but, I mean, should we be accountable for our behavior? Sure. 100%. But at the same time, what's causing that behavior? Is it getting attention? And I would say if you go back Mm -hmm. 10, 15, 20 years, there were fewer opportunities to get people into programs than there are now. I I think society's recognizing – that these programs, even like the one you went through, Casey. The 24-7. Yeah, that, that allowed you to have a vehicle and to work. And because you were ready, like like the sergeant said, you were ready to use that program to your advantage, it worked for you. And and so it, it does come down to personal, uh, you know, the whole behavior change model. Are we just contemplating or are we ready for action? And that that does happen on somewhat of an individual basis.
0: Here's how I see it. When it comes to addiction and recovery – the majority of the world looks at both those problems as a black and white problem, <laughs> and the reality is in both of those worlds, it's it's fifty shades of gray. If, if 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 you'll let me, because you know, recovery is different for everybody. It's not a one size fits all. Because what makes me an addict is not going to make makes him an addict, and the problems I'm doing are not. There's a lot of similarities, mm-hmm. but there's just it's just such it 's not a one size fits all, and you go in thirty forty years ago with law enforcement, the answer was lock them
2: up, lock them up and now we 're well, here Well I will defend law enforcement for a second and say, well that their job's to enforce the law yeah, their job isn 't to provide treatment. I think that we 're evolving in how law enforcement i 'd love mm-hmm. to hear the sergeant's take on this, um, but here in Salt Lake County, for example, we have police officers that are becoming certified in mental health intervention. Uh, so understanding that because they're often, and, and thankfully, the first people on the scene with somebody who has a mental health problem or a substance abuse problem, uh, realizing that maybe their, uh, their job description can start to include understanding that. But in the past, it, that wasn't part of the job description, and I hope it continues to become that.
1: It really is becoming that. Uh, in fact, as we speak right now, uh, my boss, uh, Lieutenant Jeff Jones, is uh, teaching crisis intervention training right now. Uh, this week, it, Sheriff Smith and many other heads of uh, law enforcement agencies are wanting all of their people to get through that, and, and we're working that way. But it's a forty-hour program, and it's hard. But we're getting as many as we can. It's really interesting. One of the things they teach you is to in this in this training is to talk to people as though it's a comfortable thing to discuss. I remember I had a guy pull over one night, uh, one or two in the morning, in American Fork, and I don't remember what I stopped him for, but. Uh, Uh, I could could tell there were some mental health challenges on board, some kind of a diagnosis. And so I just asked him, say, so what's your diagnosis? Mm -hmm. And the weight just lifted off his shoulders. I think he had been afraid of what was going to happen. You could just see the difference. And he turned in his seat and looked at me. And we talked for like 20 minutes about Mm -hmm. his diagnosis because I knew there was something going on there. And more and more officers are learning how to do that. And it makes the issue more comfortable because so many people with just... I hate to use the word regular mental health issues, you know, depression or whatever that don't have substance abuse also have the substance abuse problems as well. Right. Uh, Either the mental health challenges because of the substance abuse or they have mental health challenges and they're self medicating. They they move. Yes, they self medicate. And so I kind of look at uh, for those who won't or can't get themselves to get help themselves, I've considered what I do as one of the first steps in substance abuse treatment. If they can't make the decision on their own, I put them in front of a judge to give them opportunities. And I have had a lot of calls over the years from prosecutors saying, hey, we've got this case you sent to us, and this is what we're thinking about doing as far as a plea. You know, they get into a program or they don't do jail or, or they go to drug court or whatever. I am all for that. And one of the things I like about having them still in the core system is that it holds a little weight over their head. Mm-hmm. And for some people, the fear of, of that weight coming down on them if they don't do what they're supposed to keeps them doing what they're supposed to until they can do it on their own or because they want to. Um, and I've, I've never looked at this as a game or a competition for numbers. It's about, you know, helping people. I wish I'd have known the night that I stopped Jessica that she had a problem and I could have talked to her about it, but... Um, you know, she got it. She she did it on her own. But you know, it it's about helping people and getting to the point where they where they want that help and will accept it. You know, you know, we've
0: had a lot of people who sit down and done this podcast and they had been to multiple rehabs, multiple inpatient recoveries, a lot of inpatient, inpatient recoveries, and uh, never worked. And then we've had them sitting there. And goes it wasn't until I was in jail that it got me clean.
2: Yeah, haven't like you said that weight over them. It, it's it it's a sobering. Type of experience, I assume, to sit in jail and have your have your freedom at that moment, at least, taken away from you, and you sit there and and uh, probably the uh, the the smartest folks, you know, turn inward and real and think, what did I do to get myself in this situation, and and that might start them down that road of of accepting and wanting help, and so I think there's a lot of uh, benefit to the modern. Perspective in law enforcement of being able to pull a person over and have some crisis intervention training, uh, and be able to talk to them about a diagnosis, and and to educate uh, our law enforcement on what is mental health, like what's a mental mm-hmm. health problem, and the reality is. And I, I, we won't do this today, but we could go around this room, myself included, and you could find family histories of mental health problems, including substance abuse for everybody in here. Mm -hmm. That is just part of the human condition. But in the past, the stigma's been so high that we don't talk about it and, and we feel ashamed of it. We're afraid of it.
0: Because according to Facebook, we're all living our best lives and everything's just upbeat and <laughs> hunky-dory.
2: Yeah, that's that's yeah. true. I
0: mean, it really is. I mean, But that's yeah. the stigma. Well, there's the, a lot
2: of social media problems Sergeant that. Cannon, we're,
0: yeah. we're talking about it in the elevator up that, you know, the stigma is such that none of us want to talk until something bad happens to us. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden we're inducted into a fraternity we didn't want to be a part of. But now we've <laughs> okay, got yeah. these friends that are going through stuff that we been going through. But before that, nobody's talking about it. Nobody's doing I mean, it's yeah, right. acting like it doesn't exist. Right. Everyone's like, well, that happened to them? Mm-hmm. And you know dang well you've got it happening in your own family. For but, sure. But you're talking about other people like they've got a problem because nobody wants to admit that it's in our family. And I think you're 100% right. You know, you if you get a room of 100 people and you say, hey, raise your hand if anyone in your family is mental health.
2: You know, oh, everybody should yeah, raise yeah. their hand yeah. because it's just part of the of the life that human beings lead and the, the solution or the preventative sort of solution is to start with education and education starts at home with, are we talking about it in our families? And so, you know, for, for when the, when the police officer pulls you over, if he or she knows, Hey, I, I may, relate to some of the things that that this person's struggling with today. And I, I may need to, um, you know, provide a ticket or a citation. or I mean, may need to take someone in. But if you just have that empathy and understanding about what what could be happening with that person, you may be pulling them over on the worst day of their life. Right. And, yeah, no, and, and yeah. having that empathy uh, backed up, of course, with enforcement of the law, uh, I think is a wonderful combination. I've seen Ah, uh, great things! Uh, a few, a couple of years ago, at our clinic downtown, we had some of the folks from the Salt Lake Police Department come in and talk about their training, just to educate us, the doctors, about what they were doing, so that we could feel like we're sort of on the same team. And I thought that was fantastic.
0: You know, you want to talk about our first responders, and that's our police officers, our EMTs, our doctors, emergency rooms. You know, and you said to see you might be seeing somebody on their worst day. Yeah, imagine your day is seeing seeing everybody on their worst day. Oh, sure. I mean, that that's a lot for you guys to carry around day in and day out. And I've had multiple people from multiple agencies reach out to me and want help because the stigma with them is that they, they, they're they afraid to tell anybody and uh, they're, they're looking for help. And so everybody's looking for help. And I'm so grateful for you to stop by and, and share your story. We're going to take a break here and we're going to come back and we're going to talk about how addiction affected your family. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Sergeant Spencer Cannon. Uh, You've been in law enforcement for how many years? A little over 30 years. So you've seen a lot. Yeah. Uh, And you've had addiction touch close to home. Yes, I have. Uh, I remember Jessica saying that there was times that uh, you were patrolling the streets and you would see your kids out there doing some stuff and, you know, you're a law enforcement and you're a father. How does one deal with that?
1: Yeah, it's a difficult balance. I remember the first time that uh, I uh, found my son, I was at home, was falling asleep on the couch. My oldest son uh, got home and he says, Dad, what's Kevin doing sleeping on the in the car down the street? Well, he wasn't living at home with us. He'd moved out the day he turned 18, his choice, and uh, I thought, there's something's up here. So I go down to the car and he's drunk as a skunk and he's high as a kite and he's got three – he was 18. He's got three – juveniles in the car with him, and he was providing alcohol and weed to them. I knew he'd been using, but I hadn't caught him red-handed yet. So this was the first time, and the struggle inside was so real in what do I do. I called my wife, who was at work, and I told her where I was, and we were on the phone, and she was crying, and I was, uh, I was crying, and I uh, I remember the light came on. and said, I know what I have to do because I can't fix it. I need to try the way I've been trying it for so many others for so many years. And I called, I called dispatch and I said, send an American Fork officer and stay on the line with me because I don't want to kill my son. Um, and I was physically shaking. I was so mad. And they came and they, they said, what do you want us to do? And I said, just pretend you don't know me and do whatever you would do with any other drunk that you find on the side of the road. And he got arrested. And uh, he didn't like it. Uh, he went on doing that for three more, that kind of thing for three more years, got arrested a couple more times, but, uh, he went over 13 years clean in, in March and, uh, I can't imagine his, his NA community. I, we owe them a debt of gratitude because they did for him what we couldn't. Um, you know, all we could do is love him. And it was his NA friends who are our friends and, and really family in so many ways. Uh, that got him where he is today because uh, we couldn't you know so- sachin
0: spencer uh Cannon, we say in this the opposite of addiction is an abstinence the opposite of addiction is connection and it sounds like your fun your son found that connection with the mm-hmm. na community he did it's somebody that he could relate to somebody he could empathize with somebody he could sympathize with somebody who gets what he's going through in
1: a way that we don't you know i've dealt with Addiction and alcoholism my entire career. I've seen it in other people. I've seen the impact it has on them I've seen family members who are impacted by the choices that their family member is making Um, But I don't understand it the way a recovering addict does and there's something I can tell them everything I've seen and the impact it has and the legal impact it's going to have on their life long term But when they sit down and talk to somebody who has been there, Mm -hmm. when you talk to somebody, Casey, who uh, just got their DUI and they aren't yet where you are now, they will listen to you long before they'll listen to me because you get it. You know it. I I don't. As much as I love my son and as much as I love his friends, I've never been where they are. And to have somebody like that, the the recovery community is – nothing short of uh, angels on earth i mean they they really are for what they for what they do for those who want to get recovery and they're not looking for perfection they do not judge you it's like mindfulness it's uh being present without judgment that's what the recovery community is like you will you will not find a less judgmental group of people than those who are in recovery
2: and i think that's part of the cement that makes that connection so strong A person who hasn't had the experience but knows how to be empathetic can make a connection with a person who's struggling. But without that, um, and sometimes a person can project no judgment, but it's what's perceived by the person. And and if that person knows that you've been where they've been, then there's an automatic understanding of of no judgment. And even if you're trying as a person to be nonjudgmental, um, and this is something that I think therapists struggle with, and I'm sure law enforcement struggles with, is the receiver may still perceive judgment, even if it's not necessarily there. But one of the magical things about the folks that uh, work in, in substance abuse counseling is generally they've been there, mm-hmm. and, and the person receiving the help knows it. And that makes a special kind of connection where judgment really isn't on the table at all. And I I think that's one of the wonderful things about the work that people do in in that community.
0: I've said it so many times on this podcast. When I was married, my ex-wife goes, why can't you just quit? Just quit. And she would say, so matter of fact, like it was
2: like, well, just don't do it. And and and, right. I'll, and I'll be like, and to her credit, I mean that's where but for, her but she's that that's type her of person. experience. Well, her type of person, but she's never experienced that, and mm-hmm. she doesn't know. You know, she she didn't have any reason to think otherwise. I mean, we we just do a lot of stuff. You just get up and go to work, or you just you know take the dog out. Why can't you just stop drinking? And it sounds silly, but I don't fault her for that. No, and I
0: don't fault and her. And I, at know, all either. I know
2: you don't. I yeah. I think you have a lot of empathy for her, but it's a great example of had she had experience with with alcoholism either in her family or her own life she would have known that it, it's not that easy
0: and that's what this podcast is about is giving everybody an education and i think that's what society needs is an education on addiction and recovery and and let people know that it, it it's not the shameful thing i've done shameful things but i'm not shameful you, you, yeah. does that make sense yeah. yeah i mean i've done things that i've never thought I would do and I've hurt people and I didn't mean to uh but I know that's not who I am uh and I'm sorry that I did those but Mm -hmm. I, I I can't live in that shame But
1: we don't have to keep beating you with that yeah yeah once you get through it I gotta share one quick experience um I arrested a gal, it was around New Year's Eve, six or seven years ago, and she had marijuana. She was drunk. She had a firearm in the car with her, which you can't do when you're an unlawful user of a controlled substance, um, and took her to jail. She did not like me. She wouldn't cooperate with me. Um, I had a daughter, I have a daughter who was uh, in and out of uh, treatment for uh, eating disorders at the time, and my, she told me one day, I said, Dad, I think I might know somebody that you arrested once. Well, we go there for a family day, and this is at Center for Change in Orem. We've had her Um, on the show. Yes. Ms. Hawkins, yeah. Yeah, Nicole Hawkins. Fantastic uh, what they do there at Center for Change. Well, I walk into the basement of Center for Change, and there's this woman that I arrested. And I think she wasn't sure how to react, but I walked up and I just – Gave her a hug and told her how proud I was of her for where she was. I mean, you're not here because you're a failure. You're here because you want to succeed. You're a fighter. Um, yeah, and exactly. And I've, I've, I have a small handful of people that I've arrested that I'm Facebook friends with uh, and that I stay in contact with uh, and who have my personal cell phone number. And uh, she's one of them. And every now and then I'll text her and say, hey, how's life treating you? You know, And it, it is so rewarding to see those who can have success – uh, we see it on the other end of the spectrum occasionally too, but you know these these people they they aren't failures because they use they every one of them without without exception will tell you that I don't like the life I am living or the way I am living my life. They want to change. They just don't know how to do it, and they can't bring themselves to do it.
0: You don't know how many people reach out to me on Facebook, and they're like, "Hey, can you talk to my wife? Can you talk to my husband?" Mm. You know, they're 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 heavy in their addiction, and I don't get it. They're having all the fun, and I'm paying all the price. And I go, "You got to stop right there," because I can tell you right now, if you've got somebody in your life that's heavy into addiction, they're not having fun. No, it's all about fun. Stopped a long time ago. Fun stopped. This is just survival. They just want to get to an even base to where they can function. And, and be somewhat normal, if you will. Uh, it, it's not fun. And it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. They're coping. The, the, you know, I remember when I sat down in recovery and and my therapist goes, so you're an alcoholic? And I go, yep. Yeah. And he goes, well, alcohol is not your problem. And I go, what? I'm pretty sure it is. I'm here in rehab. I'm pretty sure alcohol is my problem. It's in the name, alcohol. Yeah, yeah, you know, and he goes, well, alcohol is not your problem. Your problems are your problems, and alcohol is your solution, and that's what you're using Ooh. to help your problems. That's he insightful. Goes, he goes, but don't get it wrong. Alcohol is now a problem for you, but it's not your problem, your root problem, and that's what we need to do is strip Back the to layers coping skills, right? and get down to what your problems are, mm-hmm. and I think that's, you know, really... Kind of what a lot of addicts are going through is uh, that, that's how they cope. That's how they survive. That's how they numb. That's how they escape. And so until we can sit down and find out what's really going on, which is hard for people to talk about because it has to do with trauma, has to talk with sexual abuse, has to talk about some things that are not very fun to Mental talk health about.
2: disorders, yeah.
0: That it's just easier to pick up a bottle.
2: So, Sergeant Cannon, I want to ask, so how many kids do you have? I have five kids, two boys and three girls. Two boys and three girls. And so far, we've learned that you've had one son who struggled with alcoholism and maybe others. Drug drug addiction. Drug drug, drug addiction, okay. And then a daughter with eating disorders. uh,
1: And she struggled also with drug addiction and alcohol Which, which again,
2: you know, those mental health issues and substance abuse issues often go Hand in hand, of course, because mm-hmm. uh, nothing feels worse than having, a, you know, an untreated mental health issue. So we, we understand people, of course, would turn to drugs and alcohol to sort of numb that out. And that, then we double our problems. Uh, how about the other kids? So You have three other kids. How, have you had other kids who've struggled as well?
1: Uh, normal, I would call, I don't know if there's any typical. normal, but, but typical, uh, typical kind of life challenges. You okay. know. I've, uh, got a son who went through a divorce uh he's since remarried and uh, i've got uh, the other the others seem to be handling their normal life day to day challenges pretty well but uh and typical
2: life challenges we, we won't <laughs> some of those easy. those can be big too yeah. as well but luckily they haven't struggled with addiction as well mm-hmm. How is your son uh doing now and how is your how is your daughter doing at um, this time
1: my daughter uh she is uh she's clean from drugs. She still thinks that she can use alcohol and for the last couple of years it has not been too problematic other than costing an arm and a leg uh, Mm -hmm. to engage in that. Uh, but she's doing pretty well on the eating disorder. She regularly goes to see her therapist and her dietitian. Good for um, her. Which I heard Nicole Hawkins talk about in that podcast uh, when you had her on. A critical thing for her to do. But she's doing pretty well. My uh, my son who uh, has been 13 years clean now. He works at a is a barber at a local barber shop here in mm-hmm. Salt Lake. Uh, has a great life. And you know when he wasn't going the course that we as his parents wanted him to, we just said Kevin. If you will just be a decent, productive member of society, we will be happy for what you're doing, and he's doing that, and and we have to follow up on our side of that and be happy for him, and we genuinely are, and we we love him, we love the community that he is. We had a bunch of his friends and their uh, their motorcycles come down to our little quiet uh, home there in Birdseye last summer. And the noise that those bikes made was music to my ears <laughs> yeah. because it spoke recovery, because all of them are recovering addicts. Oh, are they? That's they love great. and support each other, and they, they go for rides. They just went to an NA convention someplace, I think maybe down in St. George, and uh, it's what they do. They keep each other strong when one's weak. They, they lost a friend, too. Yeah. Uh, my son's roommate uh, had a relapse, and, uh, and he lost the fight. Yeah. Um, and they all mourned over that because uh, they all knew him. But uh, boy, they're they're successful now, and they're they're good examples of uh, what successful, productive members of society should
2: do. That's fantastic.
0: Let me ask you, why would you share your story with the general public <laughs> in being what you are and who you are? Uh, you know what I mean. And, and, and I mean, I wonder if there's a stigma that that carries into the police officers.
1: You know, I don't really care what people think. Uh, there was a, That wasn't always the case. There was a time when we tried to keep it within. Uh, but with our son, I mean, we, we got to the point where we told him you're not welcome in our home. If you come to our house, you knock on the door like any stranger does, and if we're not here, you leave. And that was so hard to do. Uh, he went up to Seattle, and we thought, Seattle, of all places, where you can get anything you want. And that's where he found recovery. Uh, but I want people to know, uh, in my work, I tell people, uh, I, I'll look them in the eye. and say, you know, when they, they just, you can see the despair on their face because this is new to them and I can tell them, I, I know what you're going through, not just because I've seen it through work, but because my son did the same thing to us, uh, or we, we responded the same way, uh, and you can get through it, you know, and don't try to fix it all at once, but just like they say in NA, just for today. One day at a time, and and if I can help somebody even just a little bit to feel see that little light or feel that glimmer of hope that okay it's a long road but we're going to get through it you know when I get a call from one of my coworkers and he says hey we did a uh, these are our, our narcotics detectives and said so we just did a warrant on a house and we got all these kids sitting here in handcuffs in the living room and we get a knock on the door it's your son and he's got dope in his pockets what do you want us to do I said pretend you don't know me because he's not learning from me that was the the third time he got arrested, uh, so I, I'm glad to share it with anybody, and and I don't I don't care what they know the warts because that's uh, if people think I shouldn't do that, I don't really care.
2: That is, I, I'm feeling some chills right now just thinking right? from another parent's perspective how powerful uh, your um, connection with another parent could be. Because I I don't know, like if I had the ability, what would I do? If I had the ability to say, just bring them back home, boy, that would be, that would be my temptation. Mm-hmm. Um, so to be able to have, because we've had parents on the show before who talk about, try, they need support. They need help. Mm-hmm. How do you stand strong? What's the right thing to do? You know, yeah, well, and I, and I, I think fantastic. I, I
1: believe I know what's the right thing to do. And, and I'll probably take great flack for, for saying this, but uh, not all cops do it that way. And it's wrong.
2: Well, I, I'm sitting here thinking if I, if I had the power to have my son brought home instead of sent to jail, what would I do? And and I think that uh, it, it would take a real strong uh, a strong person uh, to, to be able to let your your child taste the the natural consequences of their behavior. And it sounds to me like you you know from that first arrest, prior to that, you were suspicious that he was struggling uh you said he moved out of his own choice at 18 so we that just tells me the therapist that there had been some conflict going on there and maybe he was a a strong-willed sort of kid Mm -hmm. and and i think you kind of knew he needed to to strike out and find his own path but that still must have been hard as a parent to let the natural consequences take take over
1: it was i mean we were half a block from home i could have walked him home and laid him on the floor uh sure and said sleep it off you know but it wasn't, going to, it wasn't going to fix the problem. was It wow. wasn't going to even get close to getting him on the path to helping him yeah. get into recovery. So I
2: hope my kids are listening because if they ever are in that situation, I'm just going to call you, and I'm going to let you make the decision for me. So listen up, kids.
0: So, But I want to go back to 15 minutes ago when you said uh, you would talk to an addict, and they wouldn't relate to you because you don't know what they've been through. Now you're telling your story, and I think parents would love to hear – your story, and I think that's why this this episode's going to be so powerful because they're going to say, "Oh, he knows what we've gone through, and we've done this." And so you're just touching it on the other side, and recovery takes up it's both sides of the coin to make it work. Casey, if you ever get one of those calls from one of
1: those parents and they need to talk to somebody who turned their own kids in, give them my phone number and tell them call me. You have my permission. It's uh, amazing. I mean, I, I will, will any any time, day or night. Uh, We've had parents come to us who are struggling, and uh, I've seen parents who handle it in a way that I think isn't the most healthy or the most productive. Uh, Certainly, we made mistakes along the way, but… I'll, if I can help somebody, man, I'll, I'll wake up at 3 in the morning and go help them if I can.
0: I'm wondering if people are at home listening to this and they have kids or somebody who's going through an active addiction. Is the police department okay with us calling them, going, hey, look, I've got this situation, and I don't know what to do. And, and I'm not saying come pick up my kid, but I just need somebody to talk it through with. I mean, is is that something that you guys would be willing to do? Yeah, uh,
1: you know, and there are certain circumstances where we would have to do something, but let's say uh, the kid came home and, and he's drunk, uh, they may issue a citation, but, you know, there are situations where that doesn't happen, too, uh, and and we will, uh, we've had parents call and say, I know, mother's. I worry that there's drugs in my kid's room. Bring the dog. Bring the dog over, and we do. And uh, usually we'll say we, we may have to take some legal action on it, but that's just from the Uh, uh, the approach of saying we want to get them to a position where they've got some force behind them, at least maybe motivating them if nothing else is working
0: right now. We call it leverage. Leverage. There you go. A little leverage and say, Hey, you know, (laughs) this is what's going on. And and because if we don't stop it now, who knows when we are going to stop it or how it ends. Mm -hmm. So I I think it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast is being preventative. And that's what we want to do. We'd rather keep people from going down to hit the rock bottom rather than helping them climb out. But both we got to help both sides. So I want to say thank you for stopping by. I mean, I, I think... Oh, wait, 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 whoa, wait. Whoa,
2: whoa, whoa. Pump the brakes. Okay. We still haven't heard how he found it, how he remet uh our, our previous guest. Jessica Butterfield. Uh, Jessica Butterfield. So I just, I just want the listeners, from your perspective... Was that a surprise to you that that she showed up again in your life, and how did it happen?
1: It was uh, neither one of us recognized each other right away. Um, it was. And a couple- you,
2: you said there was a house being built next door to you.
1: Well, the there's three houses in a row. Uh, hers is right next door to mine and it was already built ours had actually been built before hers was but uh, we bought it from the previous owners and so the both houses were there we move in we think oh here's a nice family we got young couples on both sides of us each of them have three young kids and we love kids and it just seemed like a really great situation i was sitting in church one day with uh jessica's husband trevor and uh he leaned over says yeah, my wife says uh, you were her arresting officer, and I'm thinking the first thought is, Uh-oh. I hope I was nice. You know, I, I hope I was decent to her. Um, but when and I now we're that, moving, and it was about that time that she was starting her podcast, uh, which she called Mountain Mama Podcast now, which has been rebranded to the Hope Addict Hope Addiction. Hope addiction. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, but what it does for me to see where she is now. Uh, it's. I can almost not even think of words for the joy that it brings me to see what's in her life and what would be missing from the lives of her husband and her children had she not been able to find recovery. Her husband is an incredible man. She didn't share with you, but and I, I'm going to take the liberty to share this. They were dating, and she hadn't told him yet that she was a recovering heroin addict. They are on a date one night, and, Tra- and Trevor's just – something's up she's not acting normal they get home they sit on his uh, her front porch uh she's going to tell him but she doesn't he drives away he gets a block away and she calls him and says come back we need to talk and he comes back they sit there talking and she says i'm a recovering heroin addict and and she'd been clean about a year at that point and he was so relieved because he thought she was going to break up with her. Yeah, I was going to say, "You don't him. want to get that call. And he says, is that it? <laughs> and that was Trevor's reaction. That's, that's the cool. kind of guy Trevor is. That's, that's you pretty know, great. And, and there's so much going on there. But uh, to see the success she has in recovery, what she's doing with that now and sharing that with others, and the beautiful little family that she has and her kids that come over with their dirty faces and play in my backyard and – you know, that's what life should be for everybody. And she managed to get herself there.
2: Yeah, she's living a good life now. and mm-hmm. That's great. And part of it goes back to, again, a connection, which we talk about so much. And she was able to connect with what sounds like a really great understanding mm-hmm. husband. And yes. together, they've built this wonderful life. But and my I think life is
1: fuller because she's in it again. Oh, that's nice. It yeah. really is.
0: And I think that just puts an explanation point on recovery is possible. I mean, it really is. Uh, you know, I mean, if you would have went back and talked to Jessica 10 years ago while she's stealing and running for heroin mm-hmm. in Salt Lake, would she be living the life that she's got now? And she would have probably said, there's no way. Mm-hmm. There's no way I'm going to get that fulfillment of life. And here she is. And it's amazing. And out of ashes comes a Phoenix. And it is amazing oh. when recovery does work. And it Jeez. can work yeah. if you'll let it work. And uh, you've yeah, got to down, it.
1: She definitely brought herself out of the ashes. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, thank you for stopping by. Are we good to close, Dr. Matt? Uh, yes, sir. <laughs> okay. Uh, I appreciate you stopping by and giving me your number. And if people need help, I will definitely pass it along. But uh, we'd love to have you back. And thank you for your years of service and everything you're doing to protect and serve. It really is amazing. And it was great to sit down and chat with you. Dr. Matt?
2: Yeah, I just echo that. Thank you so much. And I, I appreciate you coming on and... Um, being a voice of, I'm calling it, I don't know if anyone else calls it, kind of the the modern era of law enforcement, which is, you know, a more educated uh, on these subjects type of officer that that a person can kind of like in Mayberry, you can turn to the the sheriff and ask a question and feel like he's your friend and he he understands you. And I I love that story you told about having that twenty minute conversation with the person about his diagnosis. He felt understood instead of instead of yeah. like a criminal. He felt like here is somebody who might be able to help me or at least understands me. And that's a beautiful story. So thank. Thank you so much Thank for coming
1: we're, we're making, as a profession in law enforcement, we have a long ways to go, but we're making, I think, good progress in that. Absolutely. Thank well, you.
0: We appreciate it. Thank you for stopping by. Project Recovery is brought to you by KnowYourScript.org. Don't forget, Project Recovery is a KSL podcast.